If you could open up your Bibles to uh, Mark chapter 6, we're going to read verses 45 through 56. That is on page 818. If you're using one of the Bibles, we provide it. We've got Bibles for you in these chair pockets. You're going to want to have them. Let's read God's Word together. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when the evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And when he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when, he saw, uh, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out, for they all saw him and they were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret, and they moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is God's word. And that's what most of you came today to hear. Right? Not, not simply to sing. This morning, not, not, certainly not to hear my thoughts and opinions on the world and what's going on in life but to listen, chew on, and digest what Jesus says and does and actually apply it to our lives. See if it matters for the way we live, for the conditions we're in, and then to try to live it out. And a surprise twist, a a deep irony in this passage that I hope you see as well is that this, that, that the closest people to Jesus, people who spoke the message about Jesus, the people who were doing the works, the kind of works that Jesus was doing, didn't recognize Jesus as the Christ, while those who were in need immediately did. Even though as he passed by, walking on the water, and then he immediately stopped the wind. As soon as he got onto the boat, the hearts of the insiders were hardened. But as he got off the boat, doing nothing conspicuously fantastic, just walking out, these people who had not been with him recognized him for who he was. And so this passage impresses upon us the question, if God passed by, would you recognize him? If God passed by here on earth today, would you recognize him? Not not flowing robes, without the long hair, without the sandals, 
and without the British accent, I should say that as well, get used to Jesus movies. But, born of a woman here in Cayman, he would walk into our service. Otherwise unnoticed, yes, I'd have to let him preach. Would you recognize? Of course we would. Ryan, look at me. I'm here. I've been listening. Of course I would know. I remember as a, as a kid spending a full, full American Thanksgiving day at my uncle's house, and I found this copy of Rudyard Kipling's The Jungle Book. And it was The Jungle Book, if you don't know it, it's a book of short stories, mostly focused on a boy named Mowgli, growing up in the jungles of India, where Rudyard Kipling grew up. And what stuck out to me uh, in those stories, and later when I saw the Disney movie, which had lots of hit tunes, was Mowgli's attempt to be like, eat like, think like, act like, hunt like, first a bear, then an ape, and then all other sorts of animals. But no matter how hard Mowgli tried, right? And and the Disney animation version gives all the, the songs about it, right? Be like you, right? Bear necessities. Trying to be like these animals, but no, no matter how hard he tries, he can't be those animals, and he goes back, desperate, finally finding human beings, and runs to them. Churches are not too dissimilar for being orphaned in an Indian jungle. In churches, you can look the part and think the part, act like the part, but not actually become anything different. In a nutshell this morning, here's the message. If you hear nothing else, hear this. Church-going, Christian-speaking, good-deed-doing does not mean you recognize, know, and trust Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean you've actually recognized that God has passed you by and wants to know you. Some messages would be better as a dialogue in a coffee shop. Right, in a pub or on a pitch. Some messages would be better written through a blog or social media, but you are in the right place for this message, gathered with the visible church. Those people outside these walls would vote closest to Jesus Christ. Right? You've heard the question before, but, but I thought you were a Christian. I thought you went to church. And we take that somehow sometimes as an assurance. Oh yeah, that we belong. That should give us some sort of security. But the truth is, friends, not every member of the visible church is a member of the invisible church, saved by Christ and bound for heaven. If you don't like that statement, blame Martin Luther. And if you don't like Martin Luther, blame Augustine before him. And if you don't like Augustine, blame Jesus before him, who said that the weeds would grow up with the wheat. It's just a matter of course in the world we live in. Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 19 through 23, and you can look at that with me or it'll be up on the screen. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize a disciple by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In other words, speak for you. Did we not cast out demons in your name? Pray to you. Did we not do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, yeah, but I never knew you. Depart from me, 
that will be such a sad day. It is a day that through the Word of God, I want to prevent, I want Him to help you avoid this morning. Most of us assume we are a part of both the invisible and visible church. Yeah, I'm part of both. I belong to the club and I'm not here to question whether any of you are. So I'm going to let the Apostle Paul do it for me. <laughs> let him do the dirty work. He says it very clearly at the end of his second letter to the Corinthian church, candidly commanding each person, examine yourself. Be honest with yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail to meet that test? He goes on to say, I hope you will find that we have not failed the test. Isn't it so good that he says that too? Here's a man who loves Jesus, has sacrificed for Jesus. He's sold out for Jesus, yet he says, I hope you find that I haven't failed to meet the test. In other words, he puts himself under the same microscope. He applies it. And, and for instance, I'm doing the same thing this week, thinking, do I meet this test? Do I truly trust Jesus Christ with my life? The only way for us to escape regular spiritual inquiry is disobedience. Either we say no, or we think ourselves better than the Corinthian church. We say, no, we're, we're, we're beyond that. We're beyond what Paul writes in the New Testament. So we've got to deal with it, right? If we're going to be honest, we have to deal with this. And I know some of this will, will just freak some of you out. into like a manic insecurity, like, I don't know. Maybe I am. But the worst that can happen this morning, friends, is that you go from, but I asked Jesus into my heart. But I was baptized, but I went forward. But, you know, I've gone to church for so long to, you know what, if I'm honest, I've never trusted my life to Christ, but want to this morning. That's the worst that can happen. Jesus doesn't care when you trust Him. He's not going to ask you for a born-on date. It just matters that you do. And that might be this morning. In fact, far better to wonder or have a temporary insecurity than just to assume you're a Christian and be wrong. Because the former, asking and being honest, may be the Holy Spirit. The latter, assuming, may be deadly. Maybe that's part of what it means, I think, for us to have faith like a child. We always think of faith like a child to be this, this innocent simplicity. But children are much more willing to go there, aren't they? to ask, to even doubt in their faith. Do you know that you can do that? You can have faith and yet ask a question that might seem like you don't. And children are wonderful at this. After we denied our child the Lord's Supper one day, doesn't that start to like a terrible story, it sounds like. But three years ago, we denied our child the Lord's Supper, and that actually led him to ask questions, which led him to trust his life to Christ. It was a good thing. Yet, about every four to six months, our oldest, Mason, he'll ask something along the lines of what he asked me a couple weeks ago. He says, hey, Dad, how can I know I trusted Christ? No, he didn't ask, how can I be accepted by God? How can I be saved by God? He didn't ask that question. He, Mason knows every person will be judged by God and judged right with him by simple trust in Jesus Christ. 
to trust that he's the God of the universe and he'll forever forgive the big no in our heart called sin. His question was, how can I know that I trusted him? Like, what, what, in other words, he's asking, what's the evidence? Like, how can I be sure based on, like, what I think and what I do in my life, Dad? I wish I'd just read that, this passage in Mark that we're reading this morning. I hadn't just read it. Thankfully, I did this week because it came up in our children's Bible, and of course, I meditated on it for this morning. Because in this scene, we see both evidence of genuine trust Evidences of genuine trust in Jesus from this crowd, right? And amazing truths about Jesus we might have previously missed, just like the disciples did. All right, so we're going to look at that this morning. First, on land, four brief evidences that you recognize God has passed by in Jesus Christ. Right? Because what we read here in verse 53 they, when they crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret, and they moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him. Immediately recognized Jesus for who he is. That is, that Jesus is the Christ. You've heard me say before that the, the briefest and simplest doctrinal or biblical statement we can make, theological statement we can make, is Jesus' name. Right, we always sing these songs in church, blessed be the name of the Lord. It's a great song, but what do we mean when we say that? Blessed, praise be to the name of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It's actually the simplest statement about our salvation. The simplest statement about how you can be rescued by God through Jesus Christ. Jesus comes from the shortened version of the Hebrew name, Joshua. The finished product of which is Yeshua, Yahweh saves. If you translate that into Greek, transliterate into Latin, boom, you get Jesus. How great is that? So, Christ's arrival on earth is explained to shepherds. Announced first as Savior, right? Yahweh saves. And then as the Christ. The Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew term Messiah. Both of which essentially mean anointed or anointed one. There are three groups set apart and anointed to lead God's people in the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings. An easy way to think of this is that these were people called to speak rightly for God, speak the right words of God, rightly relate others to God, priests, and then rightly rule for God, kings. People were called to do the right things on behalf of God's people, go between God and his people. Of course, no one could do this rightly. <laughs> Every person was imperfect. They messed up, usually in the same areas they were called to do. Speak God's word, rightly relate others on behalf of God, rightly help manage people. Maybe you can relate. You've messed up in these areas in your life. So a summary of who Jesus Christ is is simply than this. The one who rightly does for the Father what we couldn't. And so alone is qualified to save us. He rightly does for the Father what we couldn't do. And so he alone is the right one to save us. These people on land immediately recognize, boom, Jesus for who he is. This is the one who can rightly do what we fall so far short of. He can rescue us. He can help us. He alone can do it. Save us from decay and death. Their faith, their trust in Jesus is genuine. So four brief evidences that you might likewise recognize God has passed by in Jesus Christ. 
And friends, I want to encourage you. These four evidence aren't a Scantron test. This is not a scientific method. You know, you're not trying to score four out of four here. All right, you're trying to get an impression through God's Word if your trust in Him is genuine. So I want to encourage you, allow God's Word to be honest with you and you honest with it. So the first, having recognized Jesus, we see that they ran about through the whole region. And so my question for you, knowing, since in that excitement, them running everywhere, has your joy about Jesus caused you to tell others about Him? Let me be clear, you don't have to run. Unlike these people, you don't have to run. I've seen some of you run. Uh, in emergencies or after small children where they're running places, okay? Uh, your arms are flailing about. We don't want you to injure yourself. All right, a brisk walk is fine. Maybe a power, power walk, that's good too. But just an excitement, an excitement about your salvation. You go to tell others. Excitement, trusting that Jesus has done for the Father all the work that you could not, giving you rest, giving you the promise of God living inside of you, the promise of peace forever. Will you go tell someone else, have you? ever in that joy told somebody else about Jesus. That's the first one. The second one, they began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. Do you ever inconvenience yourself to be with or obey Jesus? And for a moment, don't count Sunday morning worship. Don't count now, because for a lot of us, that has become an ingrained routine, right? A habit, not an inconvenience, really. These people here in our story, they, 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 they rush out to help others, sick people who can't get to Jesus on their own, and they do so upon first rumor that He's arrived. Right? God doesn't send them an outlook appointment right? Through the, in, the, in their inbox. This is, this is not Jesus making an announcement on His official website. This is message board material. Right? This is a rumor at a gas station. This is overhearing someone say it at a mom's group, right? And you just go. If you don't stop what you're doing now and act, you're going to miss out. When is the last time you changed course, did something different, or ceased doing something because you trusted Christ above your own instincts, above your own plan, above your own inclination? Third thing we see here, third evidence. Whenever he came, they laid sick in the marketplaces, and they implored him. They implored him. When is the last time you asked Jesus' help to the point of imploring, begging, groveling, desperately in his presence for help? When's the last time that happened? Not polite prayers. Not, God, if it's your will, please make this happen. I know I've messed up. Not those kind. I'm talking begging When's the last time you've admitted you're in a dead end if it's not for the help of the Savior, Yeshua, Jesus? You cease trying to fix it yourself. You've ceased trying to massage help from others who could help. You cease trying to drop hints to someone with influence. Notice I didn't say resignation. I didn't say just procrastination. I didn't say you know, some platitude like, oh, there's a reason for everything. And you just tell someone, oh, you know, it's all going to work out for the best to go about your business. But rather, trusting Jesus as your only plea, you plea. 
Trusting Jesus, he's the only plea before the Father. You plea with Jesus. He's the only one who can take your request to God, and God will do something about it, so you plead with him. There's one more thing we see here from these people who demonstrate a genuine trust in Jesus. They resolve that they might even touch the fringe of his garment. And notice, as many as touch just the fringe of his garment were made well. So my question for you, has there been a marked change to your well-being? Has Jesus made a marked change to your well-being? Remember that time when that bad habit changed? Or our marriage got better? How about the last, in the last year? Has there been a marked change to your person? Because Jesus changes people. When you trust Him, you trust Him to change you. The final description here, and this story should call to mind, Mark chapter 5. Remember this when you, you might, you should. Having seen and trusted herself to every doctor, the still bleeding woman after 12 years comes to Jesus. She resolves that if I could just touch his garment, if I could just kind of get behind him into this crowd and touch his garments, I'm going to be made well. And so she does, and she's healed. And Jesus says to her daughter, your faith, your trust in me has made you well. It's what I've used to make you well. The verb translated made well, both there and in our passage this morning, sozo, equally means heal and save in the New Testament. Why? Because a physical healing was supposed to mean there's a deeper healing going on here. There's a deeper offer to heal you, to save you into eternity. One who trusts their life to Christ changes to become more like Christ. That's inevitable. Why do you think Jesus, while on earth, was so attracted to trust, right? And all kinds of trust. He loved when people showed a little bit of faith, or an extravagant faith, or a shaky faith, or an unexpected faith from someone you wouldn't think would show faith. Why does he love it so much? Because he knows not only can such faith rescue a person, Jesus can use it to change a person. And so be honest with yourself. Has there been any change to your life, any marked change because of Jesus? And if from all of these questions, you're left nervous or insecure after honestly assessing your life according to these evidences, and you're found mostly wanting, I want to share something with you. That you're anything but alone. And it's better just to own up to your absence of trust now. Recently I heard from a more experienced pastor about an older gentleman in his church a long-time member, a beloved member of the church, a deacon, right, an official position within the church. He approached the pastor after a message like this one day, and he said, Pastor, I'm in some trouble. Now what would you say? Somebody in the church, someone you respected, someone you looked at, and you said, man, that guy's been in the church a long time. I, I, I respect that guy. I respect that gal, that lady. And they came to you and they said, you know, I'm in some trouble. What do you say? Well, you might first say, well, what, what, what kind of trouble? And then like this man, he said, well, you know, I just, I just, I fall short. Now how do you counsel the person? What do you say to them next? You might say, well, we all struggle. Right? We all struggle. That's why we have forgiveness. You might say, well, you know, God is patient with us. And that's how this pastor started out with this elderly gentleman. 
this deacon until he started to gently ask the kinds of questions I asked you this morning. When you hear the gospel story, do you get excited to share it with others? Or is, is there anything you started or stopped simply because of your trust in Jesus? Because you thought, you know, I'm going to do this differently. His way's better than my way. As he started asking these questions, the man finally stopped his questioning. Kind of just trailed off in the distance and said, the truth is, I don't yet trust the Savior. I don't yet know the Savior. So if that's you, it's okay to admit it. The long-time, church-going, official position, deacon man in a church can say it. So can you. It's okay in your heart, even now, that that's me. If even now your heart's burning, maybe you've gathered a little perspiration, or you're a lot disturbed because you don't yet know Him who can save you from death, I want to encourage you to listen for the next few minutes to three amazing truths about Jesus that you may not before have recognized, but I hope you do this morning. The first one is this, that Jesus loves you enough to withdraw tangible reassurances. A lot of people want to feel God. They think God has left them. They think God is disappointed with them. I don't feel his presence anymore. I don't see all the tangible people around me patting me on the back anymore. I don't get that chill down my back that I used to. But Jesus loves you enough to withdraw tangible reassurances. Look back on the boat in verse 45 with me. Immediately he made his disciples get on the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, notice Mark is emphasizing he has dismissed them. He has made them go to their side. He has taken leave of them. He went up onto the mountain and prayed. When evening came, the boat was out at sea. He was alone on land. How many of you were one of three or more children? You were one of three or more children in your family. Raise your hand. You were one of three or more in your family. Okay, how many of you were one of two or more in your family? Okay, how many of you were singles? Only child. It's okay, yeah, it's okay to be only children. Okay, how many of you were spoiled children? Raise your hand. Oh, very good. I appreciate the honesty. There's a lot of, a lot of vulnerability this morning. <laughs> and from others of you, you'll be getting a phone call. I've taken notes. I, I know your life. What's one of the major symptoms of a spoiled child? One of the major evidences of a spoiled child. They tend to turn out as demanding ingrates, right? <laughs> In fact, some people may have said that. You may have murmured that, demanding ingrate. I don't know who says ingrate anymore, but something like that. Because if a parent is always tangibly giving, doting, or reassuring the child, the child never has any reason for Thanksgiving, and they just assume You'll be there for them. Just because. Just because you're supposed to be. You're my dad. You're my mom. You're supposed to be. And so Jesus does not remain with us in the flesh. Remember, He's the one who says, blessed are those who have not seen Me, yet believe. He's the one who says, it's for your good. Literally, it's to your advantage that I go away. Friends, the normal Christian life isn't tangible reassurances. The normal Christian life isn't feeling God. 
It's acting by faith when you don't feel it. It's the Holy Spirit strengthening you without Him loudly declaring His presence. This is the normal Christian life. As you grow. Otherwise, growth is stunted. It becomes actually impossible to grow. And that's one of the exciting, really thrilling aspects of knowing Jesus Christ, that you're always growing. There's even suggestions that in heaven, while justified and fully sanctified, you'll still grow. You'll still create. And that's exciting, isn't it? Many of you may have been encouraged, many have been encouraged, by the reading or singing of the words from the prophet Isaiah. Even youth shall grow tired and weary, and young men fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. But do you know how an eagle starts to fly? Do you know? I don't know if any of you are eagle masters, right? And you, that'd be pretty amazing if you were. I want to use that in church sometime, if you are. I'll find a way. You know me. When a mother eagle builds her nest, she starts with thorns. Thorns, broken branches, sharp rocks, and another other items you would think do not belong for a project such as building a nest. Then she lines the nest with thick padding like wool, feathers, and fur from other animals that she's killed. Sorry, she does. So, so, that, so that the nest is soft and it's comfortable for the eggs and the little hatchlings. By the time each bird reaches flying age, you can imagine the comfort of the nest and the luxury of free meals becomes alluring, pretty attractive to the point where they may not want to leave the nest, right? It's the Ritz-Carlton, right? They are at the Ritz. You can imagine how comfortable it would be, but that's precisely when the mother eagle begins stirring up the nest. With her strong talent, she begins to pull up the thick carpet of fur and feathers, she, she, brings, she brings the sharp rocks and the branches to the surface. And as more of the bedding is plucked up, the nest becomes increasingly uncomfortable for the young eagles. And eventually this and other urgings prompt the growing eagles to be so uncomfortable, they leave their once comfortable state, their once plush state, and move on to more mature behavior like flying. to think. Some seek after a version of God that would keep us in the nest. That would keep us there. Yes, He starts us there in the Christian life. And He agitates us. He challenges us. He grows us. That we might grow, mature, and fly. On wings like eagles. And that's good news. Here's the second thing you may not have noticed about Jesus. Knowing Jesus puts us in radical relational rehabilitation. Radical relational rehab. And that's a good thing, because otherwise the only end is cynicism. Right? Because of this life we live in, the end is either some sort of surface-level optimism or cynicism. First, Jesus gives what's a, or Mark gives what's in a, isn't this a great description of life? They were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Notice it's not a violent storm. It's just a slow and steady wind through which the disciples must row and row and row. What an appropriate description of most of our lives, right? Rowing and rowing 
a wind against us. During the fourth watch of the night, the disciples would have thought themselves totally on their own. Earlier, they may have thought to see a bird that might have indicated land or another sea vessel that could have helped them. But this was between 3 and 6 a.m., as your note says there. There is no one who's coming to help them or through this. But Jesus Christ isn't just anyone. He forgives when others stay frustrated. He pursues when others give up. He now never sleeps. Not even between the hours of 3 and 6. In the words of Hosea 11, He is God and not simply a man. He's the Holy One among you. You see, every religion and every relationship known to man is based on a deal, really. It's all based on a deal. You give to me, I'll give to you. You offer something, I'll offer something in return. There's this mutual reciprocity. In human relationships, we get let down all the time, even when we give something. And while we would like to not think so of ourselves, we let others down too. But the great assumption about religion is that at least if you live up to your end of the deal, you can be sufficiently confident in both the character and power of God for Him to come through on His end. And the God of the Bible starts out this way too, with a deal dressed up in a term called covenant. But as hints and rumors emerge, starting in the Old Testament, about a later insertion into this plan, and that plan is further unfurled, we begin to realize that this God is wholly different. Christianity is totally different. A man named Jesus arrives. And the Bible says at just the right time he arrives, in fact, to present an entirely different possibility. God fulfills both ends of the deal. And so Paul says, if we are faithless, if we can't live up to our end of the deal, which we can't, if we can't stay faithful and persistent and pleasing to God, He is faithful. If we are faithless, He is faithful, for He cannot disown His own nature. And so Jesus' cry on the cross, it is finished. It goes over the whole of the life for anyone who's trusted Him. No more striving, dealing, bargaining, negotiating, even with a God. No more worrying or payback or an identity crisis. Only responding. That's all that's left. Responding as a child responds to the truth of one surprising gift after another. It's true he loves me. It's true he loves me. It's true he loves me. So you get to serve. You get to love. You get to adore. You get to please someone because he has set you free from trying to do all those things on your own. From striving to do all those things on your own. Most of the difficulty, to be honest, with knowing Jesus Christ is the happy task of wrapping our heads around this glorious truth. And he's fulfilled both ends of the deal. And so you hear people say all the time, I've got to tell myself the truth about God and the gospel and who he is because he's fulfilled both ends of the deal. Because it's almost too good to be true based on everything else we know about life. That's as hard as it gets, is reminding ourselves that it's true. Everything we've experienced is otherwise, but the good news is God is otherwise. 
Third thing and last thing you may have otherwise missed is that Jesus' plan is what you would choose for yourself if you were all good and all knowing. (laughs) Jesus' plan is what you would choose for yourself if you were all good and all knowing. It's a different way to think about it. But of course, I know you and you know me. Neither of us are omnibenevolent or omniscient, all good and all knowing. All right, now I think we can be honest about that, right? Nothing else? Let me start here with this point with three phrases we see in this passage that seem out of place. They didn't understand about the loaves. What? (laughs) Okay, where does that come from? All right, it was a ghost. All right, kind of weird. You don't see that anywhere else in the New Testament. It's a ghost. It's like, is this a Scooby-Doo episode? What's going on here? Okay, walking on the sea... He meant to pass by them. So first he's walking on the water, then he actually means to just pass by them. What is three very bizarre phrases all wrapped in this little passage? But they all connect and they help us make sense of the disciples' hardened hearts and why they don't get it. First of all, the loaves. Loaves referred to our story last Sunday. Do you remember the lesson? The lesson was this. The disciples work hard for Jesus, and they think the best plan after they work hard for Jesus is to rest with Jesus, but Jesus puts a different and better plan in front of them, which involves, by the way, free teaching from Jesus, multiplying fish and loaves full of bread, a full and satisfied tummy while enjoying a miracle. Not bad, right? So dinner and a show. And enough food left over for breakfast. But they don't see it. They still think, oh, no, 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 no. Jesus, where's the rest we were promised? You missed it. So, when Jesus walks on the sea, and he means to pass by them, now this is a reference to two different moments in the Old Testament. One is from Exodus 33 and 34, where Moses asked God, to reveal himself. Just show me a little of yourself, God. And so God passes by Moses to give him a little taste of his glory, a little glimpse of his glory. And as God passes by Moses, Moses just hears the words audibly of God's glorious nature. Yahweh, Yahweh, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. It's like the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. In other words, God is good. The other moment... Is from Job chapter 9. Remember Job? Here's what Job says in Job 9. He's trying to make sense of God's plan for him. He says, God alone stretches out the heavens, and he alone treads on the waves of the sea. In other words, walks on the waves of the sea. When he passes by me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. Remember what Job is about, right? A suffering man trying to grapple with God's plan for him. Is this a good plan? So just to summarize, Exodus, passing by, God's nature is good. Job, treading on the sea, but he can't see this good plan of God because this good plan is confounding. It doesn't make sense to me. In my opinion, you see how it relates? Like Job at that time, the disciples were blind to the goodness of Jesus' plan. They think, he's left us. They think, so if something weird happens, the disciples 
think it must be bad because Jesus has left us. Here's how to wrap it all up. When you think your plan is better than Jesus' plan, you're predisposed to seeing something unusual as a bad ghost rather than a good Savior. Say that again. When you think your plan is better than Jesus, you're predisposed to seeing something unusual happen in your life as a bad omen, a bad ghost. It must be bad rather than a good Savior. Embrace Him. Consider Jesus' goodness to them. He waits so that their trust might grow. He does come to them, right, in, in their darkest hour when no one else is even awake on the sea. He reveals His nature to them when He means to pass by them. He stops the wind and its resisting powers when He's with them. But they seem to think they are all good and all-knowing. Friends, Jesus loves you enough to let you, by faith, grow beyond the borders of creature comforts of organized religion. To experience a radical new kind of relationships, first with Him, and then because of Him, with others. His plan for you is exactly what you would choose for yourself if you were all good and all-knowing. Up to this point, you may have thought that what you were doing was being a good Christian. I want to plead with you. Trust your life to Him.